evening, everybody, and welcome. I'm really glad that you're here tonight. My name is Dr. Eifler, and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we're the directors of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the university, and um, delighted to, uh, to to share the evening with you. I don't often get a chance to wear my special dress zombie earrings, but it's <laughs> or to serve chocolate eyeballs, for that matter, um, but tonight's talk really seem to um, to cry out for that. If this is your uh, first visit to a Garavena Center event, I just want to say welcome and we hope you'll come back and we have a number of flyers and calendars uh, out in the, the lobby for you to check out on your way out. We have uh, a couple more terrific talks coming up the rest of this semester and uh, if you are a teacher, a K-12 teacher in any school, public or private, um, we are delighted to be able to offer you, at no cost to you, um, PDUs, Professional Development Units, and the sign-up for that is out uh, on the table after the talk tonight as well. And finally, if you are a student who is here as part of a course and you want your professor to know that you were here, uh, the sign-ups uh, for that will be on the table outside, right? and over there um, in the back of the room uh, after Dr. Yankel's talk tonight. So I think that is all in terms of housekeeping. We do want to make sure that we don't leave any eyeballs on the table. So fill up the comments. Oh, there is one super special thing. Father Gordon and I have been directing the Garavana Center for five years and three months, and somebody in this room is the 6,000th person who has come to something that the Garavana Center has done in that tenure, and we have a valuable prize for that person and a process for figuring out exactly who, it's a highly scientific process, for um, figuring out exactly who is our 6,000 guest, and we will uh, make that presentation a, a goodie bag full of some of our favorite things. Um, most of which you can eat or drink. Um, and we'll make that presentation after Dr. Yagel's talk. So stick around for that. And the other thank you that I want to offer, uh, this is while we're sponsoring, and we got lots of seats up here, and Dr. Yagel is not going to make you talk. So feel free to fill in uh, here if you'd like to. Um, while the Garavana Center uh, is delighted to be your host tonight, this is part of something called the Beckman Humor Project. And we are very grateful to um, the late, great John Beckman, who gave the University of Portland a big pile of money and said, it's a dark world, and I really want to fund anybody, student, faculty, staff, community member involved at UP, who has any kind of idea for how to use humor as a gentle healing weapon against the forces of darkness. And uh, this program tonight we never would have known about, except that one of our colleagues uh, read an article by Dr. Yakel and said, I really think we want to bring him out here, and it seemed like a perfect fit. It's not that um, Beckman Humor Projects are have to be funny or have to be um, full of jokes, but they take a light heart, and they... Um, they look at thing, interesting things in new and interesting ways, and we have a scientist with us tonight who is looking at uh, world-class, very technical science and combining that with, um, with one of the world's great pieces of literature, uh, Mary Shelley's 
Frankenstein. So if you have an idea, if you run across, uh, if, if you run across a speaker or a program that should come to the University of Portland and it has any connection at all uh, to humor, um, Father Charlie and I are uh, would love to hear you out and and uh, do what it takes to make that program a reality. And again, that's true um, for faculty and students and community members. So that's it for the announcements. Um, tonight we are. Uh, Excited to welcome Dr. Justin Yakel, who is an assistant professor of ecology at UC Merced. And he um, has published on many things and studies lots of things. He is the only person I've ever met who, in college, both played trumpet in his marching band and on the football team that the marching band supported. So he, he is a man of a lot of interest. He's published widely on such topics as eco-evolutionary impacts of collective movements of salmonid populations, stable isotopes, integrating sensory information among uh, chimpanzees. But what he says about a lot of what he does is, you know, it really all comes down to food. And that's something that the Garrett Venice Center can definitely get behind. And he is going to be sharing with us tonight his thoughts on It's Alive, Competition, Extinction, and the Ecology of Reanimation. Please welcome Dr. Justin Yakel. Great. Thank you. Uh, can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Uh, well, first, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Eckler and uh, Father Gordon, for inviting me out. Um, it's been really wonderful visiting and seeing your campus, and it's also really nice to be in, in and around Portland during the fall, because in Central California, it does not feel like fall. They don't have seasons there, apparently. I grew up in Ohio. There's seasons. Uh, they're working on that, or maybe not. It's actually going in the opposite direction. But um, so, yeah, so the history of Coming out here is, was, was kind of interesting. I, I got a random email about a year and a half ago um, asking if I would be interested in coming out and talking about this paper that Nate Dominey and I wrote um, in bioscience, which was very much uh, what we called edutainment. Um, and it was applying ecological and evolutionary biological reasoning to the story of Frankenstein, which was conceived in 1816, and we published it in 2016 to celebrate the bicentennial of, of the story. The story itself was actually published in uh, 1818, so this year is the 200th anniversary of its publication. Uh, but I thought, wow, this is great. I mean, what other chance am I ever going to have to talk about this work? <laughs> because it's not like I can take this to a you know a conference and on ecology and, and be taken very seriously, at least not until after tenure. Um, so I, I definitely want to acknowledge uh, Nate Dominey, uh, who really conceived of this idea when he was an undergraduate um, at uh, Chicago uh, and submitted it as an essay to his English teacher, and so we acknowledge Nate's English teacher and, and the paper. Uh, and we took this general idea that Nate had and, and turned it into a rigorous uh, analysis of some of the reasoning uh, behind uh, the decisions that were made in the story, which, I'm, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, just a bit about um, my own interests. Uh, as, as Karen was saying, I'm, I'm very much interested in food, uh, how organisms acquire food, how uh, the physiology of organisms and their environment might constrain what they do to get food, how that trickles, how that trickles up to affect the population, and ultimately how that impacts community dynamics over very long time scales. 
Um, so we, we see this flow of biomass as being a, a central concept. Uh, and central to this talk is uh, sharing that resource uh, or, the, or, or our inability to share that resource sometimes. Uh, so I want to acknowledge uh, two uh, spiritual co-authors, although they don't know it, uh, Mary Shelley, um, who of course, of course is the author of Frankenstein, uh, and Xi Liu. Has anybody ever heard of this person? He's a science fiction author um, who published uh, a very well-received Dark Forest trilogy and, and integrates the concepts of competition. So we'll get to, we'll get to all of this. Uh, oh yeah, it doesn't work. Okay, so we've all taken math classes and we all realize that mathematics, the foundation of mathematics can be derived in a very small number of axioms. So mathematics is very much uh, an axiom-based um, construction and any proof in mathematics can be whittled down if you work hard enough to a few very small number of axioms that we all take for granted that are assumed. Uh, ecology is, does not work this way, and I think that it stems from the fact that ecologists study diversity, and we're attracted to diversity. Uh, we want to understand why this bird's beak is shaped this way, or why the feathers are colored that way, or what is unique about this plant or this interaction. So we're very much attracted to uh, things that stray away from the norm. Um, and so our understanding of what unites all of these different observations came later in ecology, whereas in mathematics it was built from that urge to centralize concepts and foundations. Um, so in this uh, Dark Forest trilogy, uh, Xi Jin Lu uh, actually does propose uh, two axioms. If we were to make ecology and even sociology in this book uh, axiomatic, what are the simplest rules that we could whittle things down to? And he proposes uh, that the first axiom of ecology would be that life grows exponentially. And the second axiom is that resources are finite. And these are really simple things, as axioms should be simple and self-evident. Um, but they actually have very deep meanings and deep impl impl implications. Um, so if... I'm a mathematical biologist, so most of my work is theoretical. Uh, and if we wanted to enumerate this into a set of equations, we could. And uh, I want to walk through these equations because they're going to have um, very important ramifications for later in the talk. So if we want to understand how populations change over time, we, would write a, we could write a differential equation. The simplest differential equation that we could write would be dn over dt equals rn where n is the size of the population, and we want to know how that population changes over time, and that's what the dn over dt is. Well, the simplest way, there's different ways, but maybe the simplest set of assumptions that we can make is that populations grow when individuals are born. Okay, everybody's okay with that. Uh, and populations shrink when individuals die. All right? So there's a per, there's a per capita rate of birth. How many babies an individual has throughout their lifetime, and there's a per capita rate of death, okay? Over some time span, how many deaths per person would you expect, given that length of time? And often we incorporate these things into a single parameter, R, which is the instantaneous rate of growth, and it is the per capita, capita birth rate minus the per capita death rate, okay? So if it's positive, that means there's more births than deaths, and the population will grow, if it's negative, that means there's more deaths than births and the populations will shrink. 
So what this equation says is that the change in the population size is equal to r, this instantaneous rate of growth, times the population size. Which means as the population gets larger, the change is larger. And that's important. That's exponential growth. Okay? That means if that equation were true, a small population would take over the planet and the universe within a very short amount of time. Of course, that doesn't happen because that's not how things work. Uh, but that incorporates maybe our most basic assumptions about populations. Uh, and we can see if we solve it for the population size at, at, at time t, it's equal to some initial population size times e to the rt. And that's the exponential part. Okay? So if r is constant over a very short period of time, n is going to explode. Okay. Well, life does grow exponentially. We observe this in many, many, many systems. You put bacteria into a dish, and, and it will grow exponentially at first. Okay, But of course, things are finite. Resources are finite. Space is finite. Your Petri dish is finite. Okay, And we don't observe exponential population growth forever. And the reason that we don't observe population growth forever is because of this thing called competition. There's only so much resource to go around. So competition leads to a decrease in the per capita birth rates. Okay, as that petri dish gets full, filled up, resources get crowded out. Uh, it takes resources to make babies. Um, you can't make babies if you don't have enough energy to make them. Um, and there's an increase in the per capita death rate. And that happens for a lot of reasons, too. If you don't have access to resources, not only can you not make babies, but you can replenish the energy spent in your, with your own metabolism. Okay? So if you incorporate this idea that as the population grows, that your per capita birth rates go down and your per capita death rates go up, then you would modify this above equation to look like the below equation. And what does this modification mean? Well, if n is really small, okay? Is it all? Oh, now it is. If n is really small, it's zero. It's close to zero. So if n is close to zero, not zero, but close to zero, then this fraction is also close to zero. If this fraction is close to zero, this bit inside the parentheses is 1 minus 0, so it's 1. And 1 times r times n is r times n. So when the population is really small, you just have this. So you have exponential growth before there's competition, when the population is small, when there's still plenty of resources for everybody. As n approaches some big number, and let's say k is some big number. So as your population grows and approaches k, this fraction is going to be 1, or close to 1. And this bit inside the parentheses is going to be 1 minus 1, which is 0, which means everything is 0, which means dn over dt is 0, which doesn't mean the population is 0. It just means that it's not changing over time anymore. It's reached a steady state, or what we call the carrying capacity, which is represented by k. So in the presence of competition, we see that there's exponential growth at the beginning before resources become limiting. But the population, the growth of the population slows down when it reaches its steady state. And that's where the birth rates and the death rates are all now um, adapted to this new equilibrium size. 
where there's just enough nutrients to go around, uh, but they're limited to that size. They can't ever go above it. Or if they do go above it, they'll just go back to get this carrying capacity. Okay, so this is how we would incorporate these axiomatic definitions of ecology into something quantifiable. And it turns out that <laughs> oh, competition, um, Google's amazing, you can find anything you want. Uh, competition structures a lot of what we see in nature. You might say most of what you see in nature in terms of how communities are organized. Um, but of course, uh, there isn't one resource. There isn't a single resource that everybody's competing for, which is the assumption in the previous slide that there's just a single resource. You have lots of different foods. Organisms eat different things. And you might then say that, well, if you have two species and they don't over very, overlap very much in what they eat, they're going to exhibit low competition. So low resource overlap might correspond to low competition, okay, where resources are uh, signified here by these circles and the overlap is where they overlap. Conversely, we might then say that, okay, well, as you increase that amount of overlap, the amount of shared foods between two species, that their competition is also going to overlap similarly. All right. um, now, what we see in nature uh, is more complex than this, but it, uh, the, the basic idea remains the same. So if we go into the Serengeti, where there's a huge diversity of mammalian species, it's essentially a Pleistocene system that didn't face the extinctions that the rest of the world saw. Um, you might observe uh, a number of different carnivores. Um, here they are arrayed by um, weight. So golden jackal being the smallest at 8 kilograms, lions being the largest at about 150 kilograms, and their prey by their weight as well. Okay, So this is the, the weights of their prey. And we see that generally, and this accords with intuition, that small carnivores eat small prey. Okay, you don't have golden jackals being super ambitious and going after wildebeest, okay? Or, well, those that do are not represented in the data set because they're not alive anymore. Um, as you go up from caracal servals, cheetahs, leopards, their prey increase in size. The important thing, though, is that not only do their prey increase in size, the range of their prey increases with the size of the carnivore. So lions eat the largest things, and they also eat the largest range of things. <coughs> Hyenas eat larger thing, large things, but their range is smaller than that of lions. So we can see that smaller carnivores actually have diets that are subsets of the carnivores that are larger than them, which creates a nested hierarchy of diet, dietary dependence uh, uh, among carnivores. And this nested hierarchy, the fact that the means and the ranges change is one way that these organisms partition their resources. So even though that there's a lot of overlap, they're partitioned in such a way uh, that, that because the means are changing and the ranges are changing, that they're, trying, they're essentially trying to minimize the competition between them despite the fact that there's going to be this nested hierarchy based on sizes. So in that sense, body size is very much structuring the food web. Um, the reason that this works is because when, when the range of things that you eat is small, you're specializing on that weight range. 
And when the range of things that you eat is large, you're generalizing. And we know that specialists tend to be better at doing what they do than generalists are at doing any of the things that they do. The, the strength of their strategy for generalists is that they have options. Whereas the strength of the strategy for the specialists are that they are highly tuned to do a specific thing. And so there's room for both in this world. Um, and because the specialists are nested within these generalists, that's enough to segregate uh, their, their, the competitive forces at work. Okay, so we can also say something about extinction. Species will utilize different resources to minimize competitive overlap, as I explained on the previous slide. But when competitive overlap is too high and other strategies are not available, then extinction is the inevitable result. Okay, if two species overlap too much in what they do, one is going to go extinct. Unless they can move to another habitat or change what they do, one is inevitably going to go extinct. Uh, we studied this um, on, a, on a paper that we published in 2014 looking at uh, Egyptian food webs uh, since, the last, since the Pleistocene uh, to the present, so the last 10,000 years of uh, or, uh, animal interactions in Egypt, um, where at the end of the Pleistocene we had 38 species of large-bodied mammals in Egypt, and today we have eight. Um, and the primary uh, factor that changed from the end of the Pleistocene to today is the desertification of Egypt. Okay, so at the end of the Pleistocene, Egypt was essentially the savanna of East Africa. That's what we think of, you know, it was essentially the Serengeti, and we have all the same animals in Egypt that we have in the Serengeti today. But as Egypt dried up and aridified, um, habitat became isolated to, habitat for those species became isolated to just around the rivers, uh, increasing competition. And also during that time, human civilization uh, came up and competed for the same space and same access to water, um, especially as they became sedentary and planted crops. Uh, and so all of these competitive effects converged to essentially erode the food web in Egypt. Okay, so what does this have to do with Frankenstein? Uh, well, Frankenstein actually starts with a volcanic explosion. You might not remember that from the book. It's not in the book. Okay, it was a real volcanic explosion. It was the eruption of Mount Tambor. It was the most destructive explosion in the last 10,000 years. It ejected 175 kilometers cubed of rock and soil and earth into the atmosphere. Uh, this rock and soil and earth uh, became a dust that spread out and covered the, uh, the world uh, and produced relatively short-term global cooling. Um, and it was so intense that, that, that crops were dying in the middle of August because of frosts. And uh, there, there's all these interesting colloquialisms. Instead of this happened in 1816, and they called it the, the year 1800 and froze to death. So this eruption had a huge impact, even though it was relatively short term, on the global climate system. And it was the summer during 1816, the year without summer, that Mary Shelley and her pals, Lord Byron, Bert, Percy Shelley, you know, just your you know, neighbors <laughs> around the block, uh, her sister-in-law, Claire Claremont, and John Polidori, uh, vacationed on the shores of Lake Geneva at 
via Diodati. It's kind of a ramshackle place. Couldn't afford anything nicer. Um, but it was a, it was a dark and stormy summer. Okay, it was the Gothic uh, tradition uh, emerged from the summer. Uh, it's thought. Um, so it was cold. It was rainy, and their vacation was ruined. <laughs> so they stayed inside and. The idea was to come up with uh, scary stories to, to frighten each other um, and to pass the time. And of course, uh, <laughs> one of the nights that uh, Mary Shelley was there, she had a dream um, where she conceived of the idea of Frankenstein's creature. Um, but what's less known is that John Polidori, Polidori came up with a story he called The Vampire and published later and was the basis for Bram Stoker's Dracula, which came out much later than this. So. In a single two-week span, uh, we have the uh, incarnation of both uh, two universal horror uh, monsters, Frankenstein and the vampire, later to be called Dracula. So, productive vacation. <laughs> so, of course, uh, many of you might be familiar with the story of Frankenstein. I want to go over the major plot points, but I don't want to spend too much time doing so, and I don't want to ruin too much of it, but I'm, I'm going to have to uh, if, I want, if I want to talk about this stuff. So, of course... Uh, the story revolves around a scientist, Victor Frankenstein, who had a motivation to try to create life. Um, technically, he wasn't trying to create life from scratch. He was trying to take something that had died uh, and piece it back together and reanimate it. This was also occurring around the discovery of the power of electricity. Um, and of course, you could stick electric uh, nodes into a muscle and make it twitch. So uh, people had the idea that electricity might be at some foundation for the origin of life. And it was this that Frankenstein was, um, Dr. Frankenstein was exploring. Of course, we know what happens next uh, after he pieces together a creature made from uh, body parts uh, obtained from nearby grave sites and animals. Uh, he successfully brings it to life, uh, and as soon as it starts moving around and making scary noises, he runs from the room and abandons it. He wasn't a very nice guy. So the creature now brought back to life, is on its own, wandering around the wilderness for three years, learning compassion and thoughtfulness by watching others. He would hide in the forest, and while he's uh, wandering through the wilderness, learns how to speak from watching others, learns how to read by stealing books from cabins and then returning them. Um, he finds a safe haven near the cottage of a peasant and his family where he where he teaches himself these things by watching their conversations with each other, and eventually introduces himself to the blind father, um, <coughs> who he befriends and begins having conversations, because the father being blind couldn't see how hideous of a creature he was. Uh, eventually he was scared away by the younger son of the father uh, back into the wilderness. And this happens time and time again, where he learns not only uh, the beauty of the world and through dialogue and reading, uh, but also... Uh, the dangers of the world, and the cruelty of the world. And of course, he's cast away by society, he can't show his face, and he finally uh, determines to, to find his creator and confront him, <coughs> and to plead for Victor Frankenstein to give him a companion, because that's all he wants, is a companion. To quote the creature, who is now very articulate, I am alone and miserable. Man will not associate with me, but one is deformed and horrible <coughs> as myself, would not deny herself to me. 
My companion must be of the same species and have the same defects. This being you must create. And of course, Victor Frankenstein is reluctant to do this. Uh, and after some time of persuasion, eventually decides to make the companion for the creature. I think primarily to get the creature to go away. Uh, so he sets off to do this, and he begins constructing a companion for the creature. Uh, and just as he's almost finished with his task, he has second thoughts, and he, and he destroys the companion. To quote Victor Frankenstein, Be gone, I do break my promise. Never will I create another like yourself, equal in deformity and wickedness. The creature is upset by this, very upset, um, and vows to haunt Victor Frankenstein by killing his friends and family. To quote the creature, I shall be with you on your wedding night. So Victor Frankenstein changes his mind. What was the decision-making process that catalyzed him to do this? Uh, he risks not only his own life, but the life of his loved ones, uh, to destroy this creature's only hope at a single companion, um, and sets in motion, of course, the, the tragedy of the rest of the tale. So we thought perhaps, you know, Mary Shelley is actually throughout the story evokes a lot of ecological and evolutionary biological concepts that seem central to Victor Frankenstein's decision-making process, and maybe we can untangle some of these in a quantitative way and try to understand Dr. Frankenstein's reasoning. Uh, for destroying the creature's companion, which seems, at, at least from my perspective, seemed like a very cruel act. <laughs> it's Frankenstein. <laughs> and he alludes to the reasoning behind his decision-making process, to quote, a race of devils would be propagated upon earth who might make the very existence of the species of man a condition precarious, and full of terror. And later on, future ages might curse me as their pest, whose selfishness had not hesitated to buy its own peace at the price, perhaps, of the existence of the whole human race. So, already, we see that Dr. Frankenstein is invoking this idea that a population of creatures that might arise if he creates a companion for the creature for his first creation might overpopulate the planet and push out humans this is telling coming that it becomes decades it comes decades before the publication of origin of the species by charles darwin where charles darwin as well as alfred russell wallace uh, describe a new theory of evolution. Evolution, by the way, was an older theory, the idea that species can change over time. Evolution by natural selection was their contribution. And to summarize a really complicated subject in a very short amount of time, the idea is that individuals within a population have traits that vary. And we pass down these traits to our progeny. These traits have different fitnesses where fitness is defined as the survival uh, and reproduction that they bestow. Okay? Uh, traits that have higher fitness are selected for, and traits that have a lower relative fitness relative to the other individuals in the population are selected against. 
So here we see uh, kind of descendants through time. Time is going down. Uh, mutation creates variation. Unfavorable mutations are selected against. Reproduction and mutation occur. Favorable, favorable mutations are more likely to survive and reproduce. So it's a very mechanistic process. There's no magic that is required to invoke this. It requires, however, three important things. It requires phenotypic variation, which means just variation in these traits, which are represented by different colors. It requires inheritance, that we pass down these traits to our offspring. And it requires that these traits actually differ in their fitness, where fitness, again, is survival and reproduction. Okay, And if you have all of these things, then you will have natural selection. You will have evolution by natural selection. So in a way, you might argue that these ideas may have been anticipated by Mary Shelley, and actually, Charles Darwin, as I said, didn't come up with the idea of evolution. In fact, his uncle, Erasmus Darwin, was a proponent of evolution. He didn't have the mechanism down, but he was a proponent of evolution, and guess, who's, guess who Erasmus Darwin was friends with? Mary Shelley. Now, Erasmus Darwin didn't have natural selection in mind, but... Mary Shelley does seem to invoke the process in her book Frankenstein. Now the mechanism is a little different, where we have reanimation that creates variation. Reproduction and mutation may have occurred if Frankenstein completed the creature. Uh, Frankenstein was concerned that this new population would be favored by selection, and that the fitness of these creatures might be higher than that of humans. Otherwise, he has nothing to fear. And reproduce, take over the planet. Maybe this was his thought process. Well, we could quantitatively explore this. We could make a model, I said to Nate as we were drinking beer. <laughs> um, we can think about incorporating this idea that creatures and humans had overlapping resource use um, and their competitive, competitive effects uh, can be built directly into this uh, equation of population dynamics. In fact, it's a very famous equation. It's called the Lotka-Volterra competition equation. So we can essentially take this Lotka-Volterra competition equation and reconfigure it a little bit to assess uh, the competition between humans and creatures. So can we model the predicted effect of a population of creatures competing with humans for shared resources? The way that we do this is quite simple. If you remember before, this fraction here um, becomes one as the population, and remember, a population is composed of individuals that are competing directly with you. We assume that, po that population of individuals uh, all has the same resource requirements because we're all a single species. Um, and we can add the competitive effects of a competing population. So in other words, our growth rate slows down, the population, the growth rate of n slows down as it gets close to k, as, as n gets close to k. But it should also slow down as a competitor increases its population size. Okay, so c is the competing population. And so the effect of the competing population on the growth of your own population can be directly inserted into this equation. And where we can insert this coefficient alpha, which describes the strength of competition. If alpha is equal to 1, 
then an addition of any competing species is the same as adding individuals of our own species. In other words, their overlap, their competitive overlap is complete. Adding competing species, individuals from the competing species population is just the same as adding individuals from my own population, which means I'm really competing with everything equally. If alpha is less, this, less than one, it invokes this idea that the resource overlap isn't complete. And adding a single individual isn't quite as bad as adding an individual of my own population in terms of its effect on my own population's growth rate. So as a competitor's population increases, the growth of the other becomes limited, where alpha increases with, east, with resource overlap. Okay, here's a few assumptions that we have in here. Um, I'm only mentioning two, but there's others. <laughs> okay, one of the assumptions is that the creature and its companion can reproduce. Okay? The other assumption is that this new species is reproductively isolated from living humans. And Mary Shelley indeed describes the creature as a new species. And we know already that Dr. Frankenstein is concerned that this new species would propagate upon the earth and outcompete humans, which invokes this idea of propagation or reproduction and reproductive isolation. And we're exploring Frankenstein's reasoning, so it seems apt to make these assumptions in the uh, description of our own model. Now, I mentioned that while the creature was alone in the wilderness for three years, it learned language through observing dialogue of people walking through the forest. It learned to read by stealing books and returning them. So we can assume, then, that the creature is highly, highly intelligent. In addition to its intelligence, we know from the story that the creature survived <coughs> wounds that would have killed any normal human and healed incredibly quickly. So perhaps we can make the assumption, then, that reanimated tissue is more resistant to necrosis. It's more resistant to decay. And how would this translate, then, to the dynamics of its population? Well, remember that instantaneous rate of growth, R, that controls how quickly the population grows, is the per capita birth rate minus the per capita death rate. Without changing the birth rate at all, we might assume that, well, if its tissue is more resistant to necrosis, perhaps its, rate of mor its mortality rate is lower. If its mortality rate is lower, that means the birth rate minus the death rate is higher. So R for the creature, the instantaneous rate of growth of the creature's population, would be higher than that for the human population. To incorporate the fact that the creature was not only very strong but very intelligent, we might then assume that they had a competitive advantage over humans. And we can encapsulate that competitive advantage as epsilon, where epsilon is equal to the how many times advantage do the creatures have over humans. So if epsilon equals 10, then the creature's population has a 10x advantage over humans. If epsilon equals 1, then there's no advantage. There's no competitive advantage that the creature has. Okay. Now we might make the assumption then, because of its strength and intelligence, that epsilon might always be greater than 1. And it turns out that epsilon tells the whole story, okay? If epsilon is exactly equal to 1, 
it's possible our populations could coexist. If epsilon is greater one, meaning that the creatures always have a competitive edge, no matter how small, humans are always doomed to extinction. The question then is not whether humans will go extinct, it's how long will it take, okay? So in this model, the underlying framework demands that if creatures have a competitive edge, um, that humans will go extinct. But the interesting question is how long? Because if it takes like a billion years, then it's effectively a, a moot point, right? Then we're effectively coexisting. If it takes 10 billion years, then you know, we don't have to worry about anything. So the outcome is predetermined. If the creatures are a superior competitor, even if their competitive edge is small, humans are doomed to extinction. But time scale matters. If the time to extinction is very high, it is effectively a moot point. So what we wanted to ask is how long do we have? If, we, if Frankenstein had created a, a companion for his creature, how much time would we have? Okay, to do this, to answer this question, we, we effectively have to track two populations over time. We have to track the human population and the creature population using the framework that I showed you in the earlier slide, that Lotka-Volterra model. And then we can assess the time to extinction given, first, the superior competitive ability of the creatures, which we know will doom us to extinction. Now we ask how long. But we have, a, we have an edge too. There's only two of them. There's a billion of us in 1860. There's a billion in 1860. Now there's 7.3 billion. I looked it up this morning. Okay. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a strong edge to have, two versus a billion. Okay, we added something else. Now, we know the story of Frankenstein, it actually takes place in various places across Europe and towards the end outside of Europe, but the story is mainly constrained to Europe, and we know that the creature was uh, constructed within Europe. Uh, so if the creature was allowed to procreate with uh, its companion, uh, its population would begin in Europe, which is the most dense uh, locale on the planet in 1816. Uh, so the European population in 1816 estimated to be 178 billion. Oops, million. I guess the letter makes a difference. Um, okay. Uh, the global population in 1816 was a billion. Okay. So so Europe was was about a fifth of the uh, human population across the planet. That's, that's, a, that's a dense place to start a population. That's, that's heavy competition initially. So perhaps uh, being in Europe um, might make things a little harder for the monster, for the creature. I don't want to invoke uh, a negative stereotype. <laughs> okay, so the idea is that the creature population begins in Europe, the rule that we initiate or that we, we, we put into the model is that once Europe's population declines to about 10% uh, of its carrying capacity, uh, the creature will begin competing on the global scale with the billion inhabitants of Earth. Okay, so what you see here is the trajectory of the two populations over time. So the creature population is green, it starts out at 2, and this is log scale. Uh, the human population in Europe starts here, okay, and here we have 
the creature population growing, 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 growing. At this point, and the human population starting to crash, notice it takes a little while, mainly because the scale is logged here. The human population starts to crash, and once it crashes, we assume that the creatures then make their way out of Europe and compete at the global scale. As soon as they start competing at the global scale, mainly because Europe was such a large percentage of the population anyway, uh, the global human population crashes, and it takes about 9,000 years. 9,000 years after 1816. But I skipped a part of the story. Okay? So when the creature was trying to convince Dr. Frankenstein for him to complete his companion, he strikes a deal. He makes a concession. The creature makes a concession. And he says, if you consent, neither you nor any other human being human being shall ever see us again. I will go to the vast wilds of South America. My food is not that of man. I do not destroy the lamb and the kid to glut my appetite. Acorns and berries afford me sufficient nourishment. My companion will be of the same nature as myself and will be content with the same fare. We shall make our bed of dried leaves. The sun will shine us as on man and will ripen our food. So Mary Shelley, in 1816, invokes two important ideas that aren't formalized until more than 100 years later. Okay? First, she invokes this idea of the ecological niche, that organisms separate out what they do in resource space. And by minimizing competitive overlap, the creature is proposing that Dr. Frankenstein doesn't have to worry about competitive exclusion. Which is really kind of amazing uh, to think that she integrated so many foundational concepts of ecology and evolutionary biology into the story. And in fact, this is the motivation for us writing this. But is this a concession or is it a trick? So if we assume that the creatures don't begin their population growth in Europe, but the Amazon basin, what effect will that have on the extinction trajectory that we already outlined? And again, we know that they're going to go extinct, and the question is, how long? Was there a hidden agenda in the creature's proclamation? Was the creature trying to trick Dr. Frankenstein? So in 1816, to the best that we can guess, the Amazon basin was populated, but the population was very, very small, uh, of course, consisting of hunter-gatherers, uh, First Nation peoples that live there in the Amazon Basin, about 45,000 within the basin. The global population, again, in 1816 was a billion. So we can reset our model so that the creatures uh, take off to the Amazon Basin and begin competing with the much smaller Amazon Basin population. Very quickly overwhelm it. It still takes some time, though. I mean, uh, if, if this actually happened, they would still be in the Amazon Basin. Um, the Amazon Basin population collapses, and now the creatures compete on the global stage and drive humans to extinction in about 7,000 years. And I've put up the older, the European model up here, which again uh, drives humans to extinction in about 9,000 years. Here it takes 7,000 years, so 2,000 years faster. 
So the Amazon basin, we can effectively imagine it as a catalyst to the invasion of the creatures, population. Um, and so it looks very much like this was a trick. And perhaps uh, Dr. Frankenstein's realization of this trick, because we know he was a scientist, was familiar with using models uh, to explain natural phenomena, perhaps he figured this out. And maybe it was this trickery that led him to the final conclusion that he needed to uh, destroy the creature's companion. So perhaps Dr. Frankenstein wasn't a complete monster after all. Now there's a lot of unknowns in our model, and we can assess the, the impact of these unknowns on the outcomes of what we're assessing. So one of the unknowns, as I already explained, is the creature's advantage. We don't really know what advantage the creature had. Again, if it's 2x, it means the creature has a 2x advantage over humans. If it's 10x, the creature has a 10x advantage over humans. On the y-axis, we have the time to extinction. So lower is bad for us. Okay. Now on the x-axis, we have something else. Okay. This is the overall competitiveness of creatures and humans fighting amongst each other. So if the competitiveness is high, that means humans are reacting violently to uh, increasing creature populations. But because creatures have an advantage, creatures are always <coughs> competing us. Okay? So violence begets violence. Um, violence begets up to 10x violence, which is bad, um, if we're on this side of the scale. On this side of the scale, the overall competitiveness is, is low. So perhaps we try to work things out, okay? Um, and what we find, the solid lines are for the European example, and the dotted lines are for the South American example. So first, we can always see, no matter what situation, so here the, the, the banded the lines are paired together, no matter what situation, no matter what creature advantage they have, uh, the South American version of the model always, always uh, drives us to extinction sooner because it dips lower, okay? Now, if the creature's advantage is small, that means we won't go extinct very long. I mean, sorry, the, the time to extinction is long, okay? Um, if, as the creature's advantage grows, the time to extinction shrinks, uh, decreases drastically, as you might expect, where the, where the creature has a larger advantage, it's gonna drive us to extinction faster. But one of the interesting things is with respect to the overall competitiveness. So if we take uh, these sets of curves where the creature's advantage is at 5x, well, when the overall competitiveness is low, the time to extinction is effectively infinite, meaning there's effective coexistence, all right? So again, take these lines. If the overall competitiveness is high, this goes to infinity, again, there is effective coexistence. Now what's happening? So if we're on this side, where the overall competitiveness is low, it means that the creature's population is growing, but it's really not having a huge effect on us. So this, if, this, this would be the scenario if the creature and its companion and their descendants decided to stick with the plan and completely develop a different niche than ours. This side of the curve is more interesting because it says everything is hyper-violent. And of course, the creatures are 5x more violent in terms of their response on the human population. However, 
because they start with such a small population size, they can never get it large enough to have that big competitive advantage. So in this scenario, as we have this overall competitiveness driving this line back upwards, it would be as if the hunter-gatherer populations within the Amazon basin are actively hunting them down. So even though those creatures have a distinct advantage, there's just too many uh, human competitors to ever get a foothold. The worst case scenario then is right in the middle where the overall competitiveness is moderate and that results in the quickest human extinctions. So the time to extinction is minimized when the creature has maximum advantage, the 10x scenario. The overall competitive pressure is low to intermediate, so that allows the creatures to, get, to gain a numerical foothold. And the creature and its companion begin their invasion in South America, which is this dotted line, which acts as a catalyst to promote the invasion across the planet. So Dr. Frankenstein destroys the creature and uh, dedicates the rest of his life to hunting, to hunting down the creature after the creature destroys Dr. Frankenstein's family. Um, to quote, my rage is unspeakable when I reflect that the murderer whom I have turned loose upon society still exists. I have but one resource and I devote myself either in my life or death to his destruction. So the fear of competitive exclusion by a species with a selective advantage explains, does seem to explain Frankenstein's reasoning and the destruction of the creature's companion and Frankenstein's doomed promise to destroy the creature itself has implications for a larger paradoxical observation of the universe that I want to briefly mention. Competition across the universe. Who's heard of Fermi's paradox? A few people. So it's this question, if the universe is so vast and potentially so full of life, and all indications suggest that there are Having planets around stars is the norm and not the exception. Where is everybody? Why don't we see interstellar civilizations uh, communicating with each other across the vast distances of space? Okay, And of course, this is formalized by the uh, Drake equation. Um, and recent es uh, estimates suggest that because planets are so um, common, uh, the number of advanced civilizations in our universe should be quite high. So in this estimate, it's 31,000 advanced civilizations within our own uh, galaxy, okay, the Milky Way. So where is everybody? And this comes back to Xijin Lu's axiomatic perspective of ecology, where, again, life grows exponentially and resources are finite, and we know these things combine to create competition. Now, he has two li lemmas. Uh, that refine these ideas. And one is that technology happens in bursts and chains of suspicion. Sounds pretty suspicious. So, lemma one, technological bursts. So, communication is limited by the speed of light when we communicate with other planets uh, or other civilizations across the vast distances of space, which is uh, written here, that, uh, what, 299 million meters per second. Uh, so to the nearest star, the nearest star system is about four and a half light years away. So to send and receive a signal, we're talking about close to a decade. 
it also turns out that they, there's a planet on the nearest star system that is within the habitable zone and about Earth size. Uh, but it would take a decade to send and receive a message to that planet if a civilization existed on it. Xi Jinping says that technology advances in bursts. You know, think about the last 200,000 years of human existence on this planet since we've been a species. Uh, we've advanced from dancing around fire to the atomic age in about 500 years. So technology happens in very short periods of time. So if a highly advanced civilization receives a signal from a less advanced civilization, that hierarchy is not dependable. The hierarchy of who has the more advanced civilization, given the time scales of, communi uh, of communication <coughs> versus the time scales of technological advancement. So if we receive a signal from a less, so if a more civilized uh, society, a more technologically advanced society see, receives a signal from us, they can't be certain that we're, always, that we're going to have a less advanced technology by the time we send and receive each other's communications. So who's on top? That power dynamic is uncertain at, at, at distant scales, um, you know, on, on the scale of the universe. So lemma two is chains of suspicion. Chains of suspicion. We can imagine that civilizations that contact one another might have to play a game. They have to decide whether they're going to cooperate with this unknown civilization or to defect, where defection in this case means destroying it. Okay, and this is, of course, formalized as a uh, game-theoretic uh, example of the prisoner's dilemma, uh, where, again, the strategies could be cooperate or defect. And we know that, in this case, mutual cooperation benefits both parties, but it's not a Nash equilibrium where a Nash equilibrium is defined that you cannot increase your payoff by changing your own strategy. So it's always better if both are cooperating for one of, one of those cooperators to defect. You're always going to increase your payoff by defecting. And if your information is limited by light speed and generations pass between transmissions, you can't be certain of their technologies, you can't be certain of their political agendas, because decades and, and potentially generations might have passed between the last time that you con connected with that civilization. So in Xi Jinping's world, his perspective of the universe then is that it's always going to be beneficial to defect if you are an advanced civilization. So putting this chain of logic together, life can grow exponentially across star systems in short periods of time, just based on the principles of population expansion, exponential growth. But resources are finite. They're even finite at universal scales. And competitive exclusion is inevitable if there's competition for those resources. Because cooperation cannot be guaranteed, defection is the only strategy. And this should be reinforced as the distance between communicating civilizations increases. Which is why we have... According to Qi Jin Lu, a dark universe, a dark forest. The universe is not empty, it is a dark forest. Those that survive stay quiet. When you look at a dark forest and it's quiet, you don't assume that there's no life there. They're avoiding predators. 
Of course, we, on the other hand, have been broadcasting our existence for about 100 years into space. So technological civilizations that we can't even imagine might be receiving I Love Lucy and knowing exactly where to pinpoint us. And if this is the rule book that they're using, we could be in real trouble. There could be less depressing solutions to the dark forest theory. Um, so for example, we exist way out on this arm at the edge of the uh, Milky Way galaxy. Uh, but of course, as you get closer to the center, stars get closer together, and perhaps communication, because of that, the, the smaller distances between civilizations, communication might be better. And so the stakes might not be as high. The chains of suspicion can't be as long. Not as many generations can pass between communications between star systems. So perhaps uh, we might expect uh, a more positive outcome between civilizations that are closer together. Uh, us, on the other hand, you know, we might be we might be screwed. Okay. So to bring these concepts back together and finish up here, uh, resource limitation and the compounding effects of population growth places competition at the center of our own ecological universe, and possibly universes much larger. The achievements of women in science are too often overlooked, and we should give credit where credit is due, and it is certainly due in this case where Mary Shelley very clearly articulates foundational concepts in ecology and evolutionary biology many decades, and in some cases a century, before they're formalized, um, but not acknowledged. So with that, I would like to finish up and thank you again for having me out uh, to, to give this talk that I really could give in no other uh, circumstance. Um, I really do appreciate that. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, we are UC Merced, the fairy shrimp. Our life cycles are more complex than yours. This is the unofficial mascot. The real mascot is a bobcat, but every other high school has a bobcat mascot. So this is the, uh, this is, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a thing developing here for the fairy shrimp. So thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Dr. Yankel to take one or two quick questions, and then I want to get to our 6,000 visitor. So okay. go ahead, Dr. Yankel. Yeah. We could muck your whole thing up here with global warming and man. <laughs> the resources are shrinking. Resources. You you're assuming a constant resource and all of that. So yeah. Apparently. Yep. So I would say in response to that, these would be the maximal estimates, and everything's probably much shorter. <laughs> and it turns out we might not need creatures to drive ourselves extinct. <laughs> the time scales might be so different. I agree. That's depressing. There was a question about that. I have a question. What, are, what age are you assuming the creature reaches sexual maturity? Is it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that was a few things, no? It took forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what we did was so, this is at the population level. So, we took uh, the, the known uh, growth rate for human populations, actually estimated from data around 1816, okay. and just multiplied that by 1.5. Okay. So, we just uh, we assumed a 1.5x advantage. Um, that's a really good question. Um, Could you repeat it? I'm not sure everyone heard the question. Oh, what age does do creature offspring reach sexual maturity and <laughs> changes in that might alter expectations? So, yeah, no, that, yeah, I, that would be interesting to explore. That would require another model. <laughs> creature creature life history. Like yeah, they might not. Well, <laughs> according to the movies, they didn't like each other very yeah. much. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, how about one more? I would just yeah. like to make one observation. 
everything you've presented tonight is a metaphor for our current global political situation. Yes. <laughs> I would agree. One of the things we love in the Garavena Center is every year around Halloween we try to do something that is fun and intellectual and, and doesn't suck the joy out of Halloween, but just is a nod to the season. So we're really grateful that you helped us do that this year. And somebody out there is our 6,000th guest in five years. And you will know that you are that person if you check under your chair. You will have a card that matches the hairline of Frankenstein's creature and says you are lucky number 6,000. We'll have you come up and explain your prize. And in the meantime, would you help me uh, thank Dr. Yako for the